This Mother's Day, join CARE in honoring the resilience of mothers around the world. In Sierra Leone, facing one of the world's highest maternal mortality rates, one nurse named Zainab has not lost a single mother. Supported by CARE's work, Zainab's clinic has become a beacon of hope in her community. Zainab's spirit extends to CARE's work worldwide, aiming to ensure every mother's safety during childbirth. Learn more at care.org slash Mother's Day. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I'm your host, Liv, here with more of the spookiest of spookies, conversation edition. Today I spoke with one of the biggest names in ancient spooky, Daniel Ogden. He is professor at Exeter in the UK, and we actually spoke because I had one of his PhD students on the show, Ryan Denson, to talk about all things sea monsters. You must remember that one from earlier this year. It was great. So when he suggested I speak with Professor Ogden, I was eager, not least because I own like four of his books and used my favorite one, the source book of magic and all things supernatural, not the official title that's in the episode description, but I used it in so many of this month's episodes, let alone the past spooky seasons that I've done. So today we spoke about all things supernatural, werewolves and witches and dragons. We dived into it all and I am obviously very excited for you all to listen. One note is that we did record this shortly after I spoke with Ryan about sea monsters. So we're talking like March. So it's been a a while just to explain a couple things mentioned, but obviously I had to hang on to this episode until October because spooky. So sit back and enjoy all things spooky and supernatural. 
conversations, dragons, witches, werewolves, the ancient supernatural with Daniel Ogden. So I would love to hear about really anything when it comes to the supernatural world in the ancient world, particularly, I think, like werewolves and witchcraft and and dragons as well. So, I mean, I'll, I'll guide the conversation or I'm just happy to also have you talk. So what interests you in this side of the ancient world? Because I do think it's kind of unique and different from from the more sort of the typical access points. Um, I think it's just. It's just me, really. <laughs> you know, um, this, this is my kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, I, I, uh, I mean, my uh, when I started my graduate work, my, my research, it was in a very sort of sober, serious. Well, yeah, pretty sober, um, serious uh, area. Uh, my PhD was actually on illegitimacy in ancient Greece. That was mm. the that was the sort of the, uh, I suppose kind of fashionable sort of social historical. Um, subject in the uh in the um the late 80s the early 90s you know when i was doing it um and i i, I enjoyed that uh work but um i guess it wasn't really me you know <laughs> and what uh i mean what i'd always loved since being a kid was um uh horror um certain certain kinds of science fiction mm. um uh and uh and but, but the things that I, I, I was particularly interested in was Hammer horror movies. Of course, I didn't get to see them until I was quite a bit older. Um, but even from being a small child, I was fascinated by you know that those particular versions of Dracula and Frankenstein and the Mummy, this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's it. So uh, so you know, I mean, the simple answer to, this, to your question is that I'm just looking for that kind of stuff in the ancient world. I, I mean, and it's. That's something that's very fascinating to me as well. I, I mean, I sort of just appreciate horror generally. My version of loving horror is a lot of like slasher movies from the '90s and and weird things like that, supernatural. Um, and so, basically, as soon as I found out that I could talk about werewolves in the ancient world, it was like a very, very big thrill for me. So. I mean, I think, and I hope it's all right that I want to start with werewolves. I know you're, you know, you're most recently talking about dragons. Um, But werewolves are so interesting because I just kind of, I guess I had no real grasp that they, the concept of that was so ancient. And, and like, Mm. why do you, I mean, why do you think that that existed back then? This idea of being transformed into a wolf as I mean, I don't, I'm not phrasing a question very well, but I basically just want to hear more about <laughs> why yeah. you think werewolves happened in the ancient world. Well, it's, it is a good question, and I'm not, I'm not sure I have a, a definitive answer. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, it's often said that, well, wolves are often regarded as, in a sense, the antithesis to man, mm. uh, as as man is the super-civilized um, the wolf is the super wild. I suppose, I mean, you could say that there are many animals that could be regarded as super wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so why why not talk about men turning into them instead if you want to play with that that polarity, you know, mm-hmm. if you want to think about, well, you know, that, that polarity between wildness and civilization. Um, they are, but 
I suppose, I mean, wolves being fairly big animals are sort of almost kind of man-sized somehow. You can sort of understand, <laughs> as it were, the, the transition between between the two. It's mm-hmm. a bit harder to think of, um, you know, the transition between a, I don't know, a man and a stoat, for example, isn't it? <laughs> you know, they're sort of they're the right size. Um, but as I've suggested in the werewolf book, I think it's actually rather, it's not, not quite as simple as that. It's not just that wolves are super wild and, you know, humans are super civilised. Um, because if you think about it, um, and actually I think most people who are interested in wolves these days would think about it like, like this, in their own way, wolves are super civilised, mm-hmm. aren't they? I mean, they have their own their own packs, their own communities, their own hierarchies. They're very cooperative, um, collaborative animals, and of course, they're basically they're basically doggies, you know, <laughs> and you know, and uh, you know, and, and indeed, you know, in the right circumstances, are rather friendly uh mm-hmm. animals. um so so I, again I, I i think that that's that's part of the mix too that there is already that there is already that sort of bridge there between man and wolf mm-hmm. um and again as, as i again as i do say say in the book uh, in a sense um a wolf is already in itself a werewolf because it does have mm-hmm. the wild aspect but it also has the civilized man-like aspect you know, so um, I think so. I think I think that's the reason of choice. If you, if you're thinking about what what animals might a man turn into, um, or what sort of problems might we think through, you know, um, with this sort of polarity between between man and wolf. Uh, again, I do think the wolf sort of particularly lends itself to that uh, to that to that sort of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I mean there are. I mean there. I mean that that's 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 my basic take. Um, mm. I think, in fairness, I should say that probably other people would probably give you other answers. Uh, I mean, one answer you might you might be given um, would be that it's all to do with social organisation, um, mm. and that there's an ancient tradition, an ancient custom, and sort of international, almost universal, I think, um, custom. Of, of young bands of warriors being sort of conceptualized as wolf packs um, oh, interesting. and so and so this is this is basically the, the origin of it the other where the young man becomes the wolf to be this sort of to be this sort of marauding warrior and that's a phase he grows out of in due course so you have the man turning into the wolf and then returning from the wolf to to, to, to personhood, I suppose, manhood. Um, again, it's all. To, I mean, rights of transitions are in there somewhere. You know, the mm-hmm. idea that you go into, you temporarily visit an opposite status and then return from that opposite status um, to, tra- to 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 transition. Um, so, I mean, a lot of people st- still believe that kind of stuff about mm-hmm. about werewolves. You know, um, I mean, there's, some, there's something in it. There's something in it, mm-hmm. but. Uh, I mean, I think. I mean, uh, I think. Uh, I and mean, we we do have a bit of that in in in, in the ancient world, uh, particularly in the case of Arcadia, it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think. I mean, I think, in, as far as the ancient world is concerned, the notion that um, young warriors are werewolves is that's. I think that's a sort of metaphorical development from an already existing sort of folk belief in werewolves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to me specifically because I focus so much on mythology broadly. And 
there's so much transformation in mythology, but there's something so different about the idea of transformation when it comes to werewolves. You know, like, I mean, mm. the gods are always transforming into animals to do various things, good and bad. Um, but the idea of like humans transforming in this much more like explicitly um, wild kind of way. Like when humans are the idea of a human transforming into a werewolf, it's like them becoming something else entirely versus the idea of a God transforming. And very much, I think we're to assume that, you know, when Zeus transforms into a swan, he's still Zeus. He just looks like a swan. Mm. Whereas werewolves are so different. It's much more, it feels like a, just like the, a fear in the human psyche of becoming a monster, I guess. Yes, although they're not, they're not again, they're not necessarily quite as different as as, as you would think. Um, mm. Yes, certain certain werewolf stories, yeah, um, entail that the, the the man transformed into a wolf is a real wolf, or you know, behaves like a wolf, and mm-hmm. obviously you have that with the, the Petronius werewolf story, if you know that, uh, mm-hmm. where the soldier having transformed starts attacking the flocks that uh, the militia keeps. Uh, and I suppose, I suppose the the werewolf um, latent in in the Aesop story again, who 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 is potentially going to devour the innkeeper, um, uh, is also is also of that sort. But then again, if you go back to the Arcadian material, mm-hmm. um, uh, again the the belief is that again these young men having uh, they transform into wolves for a, a fixed time. Before they can recover their, their I say their, their, their personhood, um, but there's this notion that if they abstain from human flesh within that time, uh, sorry, well, well, the notion is that if they abstain from human flesh within that time, then they are able to transform back um, mm. uh, to, to to being human again. So that, um, and I think the the assumption is that in fact they all do. <laughs> um, okay. So that that. Uh, that sort of builds a picture of a werewolf who's actually um, rather civilized werewolf. I mean, still a man mm. inside, as it were, uh, with, or with some degree of human consciousness. Um, and that and that sort of ties in very neatly with the earliest medieval werewolves. You know, so there's so after about 400 BC, when when um, Augustine is talking about werewolves, after that there's a kind of gap, you know, of uh, of uh, 800 years or so until we start hearing about werewolves again and typically in, in well first in French and Norse sources um, and in those in the, in the French sources again those were those werewolves are sort of unfortunate men transformed into wolves but still retaining their their, their, their human consciousness inside mm. um, so again there's there's not much emphasis on that on in in the the ancient sources which are mm quite sparse as, as i'm sure you realize um mm-hmm. but i think again cert- certain ones of them do do entail the notion that the the man transformed into the wolf is still a, is still a man and can behave you know in a fairly civilized way mm-hmm. like that just makes it so much more interesting like the idea that there are so many different variations on mm. what it is actually like to be a werewolf in in whatever way that that there are these like not options, but these alternatives where where you're either monstrous or just a person in a wolf, it really adds to the just the fascination that that the stories were really developed in the first place. That they they have these all different types and and you know span so sure. many different generations and you know and centuries and things. 
Yes, I agree. There's 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 no there's no sort of one fixed pattern, even in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, each each werewolf seems to each werewolf case seems to be a little bit different. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I just love the idea of these things, um, you know, crossing time so much and just staying in the realm of imagination in all these different ways. Because even today, you have stories of werewolves that are good or bad or or a little bit in between, and and sure. just the idea that 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 the story is that old is, is so exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just the idea that that uh, that the ancient world, while they were you know so involved in in mythology and everything, but then had had all these sort of separate and much more human ideas of of transformation and and generally like the supernatural i suppose in general um is really just broadly interesting to me one of the other um books of yours that i love to use which i realize is probably like a different um i don't know how it goes writing these things but the the source book that you have on oh. just generally magic and everything sure. is has been such a wealth of information for me because just the idea that that witches and witchcraft and magic and the supernatural broadly uh is is utilized in so many different ways is really interesting um and again i'm trying to find a question within that statement but i suppose you know well actually you know what one thing that that really interested me i spoke to somebody uh last year about this is the differences between um, the the ancient Greek ideas of witches and witchcraft and the Roman, because sure. to me, this is speaking broadly, but they feel very distinct. You know, we have yeah. women like Circe and Medea, and then we have sure. women like, um, oh, I'm going to forget her name, but the... Well, Canidia, Erykthoe, yes, exactly. they would be the obvious ones, Meroe, yes. Nephilus, they'd be the obvious ones to mention. Yeah, yeah, Canidia is who I was thinking of specifically, but but all of those I've uh, you know researched. This was a, a while back now, but but the, they're such distinct types of characters, and it seems to me that the Greeks really found like a almost like a more positive interest in the idea of these kind of characters, mm-hmm. whereas the Romans felt the need to make them like a bit more either ridiculous or dangerous or or just it's very it's interesting the differences. Do you have? thoughts on what that comes yes. from yes uh yeah i mean well i think actually greek witches uh and actually, i mean our evidence for greek witches is, is really quite limited it's it's mm-hmm. not much more than the traditions of circe and medea and there's a whole bunch of people out there who don't think circe is even a witch anyway but <laughs> um uh yes i think well i think the big difference in the end is that yeah? Roman witches tend to be old hags, mm-hmm. and ten, and tend to be well. I've used the word gothic; is a bit of a vague word, isn't it? Going back to my Hammer horror days, really. <laughs> <laughs> they, they tend to have a sort of gothic atmosphere. Um, they're so they're bloodthirsty. They're particularly mm-hmm. bloodthirsty and uh, involved with body horror and things like that. You know. But you know, I mean, we shouldn't we shouldn't sort of let our eye leave the ball on this. I mean, the Greek Greek witches are can be pretty bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, let's not forget that Circe seemingly transforms all visitors to her island into animals. And um, I mean, let's just think this one through. Um, she turns obviously famously Odysseus's crew into pigs and herds them into styes. Now, what's that about? What's that for? If, if, I mean, she's not just keeping them as pets, I think. You know, I mean, there's only one thing. Pet, 
Sheep you can keep for wool. Mm. Cows you can keep for milk. Chickens you can keep for eggs. There's only one purpose of a pig in a farm, and that's to be eaten. Mm. So she's planning to eat them, right? So that, that already makes, you know, we think of sexy Cersei, but that already makes her look a, a whole lot worse, doesn't it? Mm. And we can go further than that. Um, I think the indications are that every animal on the island is a human being that's been transformed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not immediately apparent when when the, when we first hear about the wolves and the uh, the wolves and the lions that's the wolves and lions that surround her house. But later, but later on in the text, it does become clear that those also are transformed human beings. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think back again, before Odysseus has actually even seen, I think Circe's house, or at least anyone suddenly approached it, he's found this big stag which he's mm-hmm. which he's shot. And he's taken back to his crew at the at the beach, and they've eaten it. So mm-hmm. not only is Cersei eating people, she's tricking perfectly innocent people into cannibalism. So mm-hmm. you know, so she is pretty much a monster. And then to turn to Medea, I mean, let's not forget that Medea's first significant act really is, is to, um, well, yeah, I mean, first significant act, well after after the 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 the, uh, the Gold Fleece episode itself. Her first significant act is actually to murder her own brother and chop him up into little bits. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and again, again, you know, uh, sort of modern perspectives on the Medea play really, you know, have a lot to answer for. Even though she's murdering her children, she comes across as really sympathetic to us, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. You know, and she's, I mean, you would say that within ancient Greek myth, she's almost like a feminist icon. You know, I mean, she, you know, she... You know, she, you know, she takes on a uh, um, a cheating husband and uh, and uh, sorts him out, doesn't she? <laughs> but, but yeah, uh, I do. You know, but uh, one has to uh, um, imagine. I think that an ancient audience would have would have. Uh, you know, they certainly certainly one has to be sympathetic to a certain extent to Medea in the play. There's, there's mm-hmm. very little interest in it if, if if one isn't sympathetic to her. But I think you know those those that that child murder at the end has to figure rather large more 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 largely, you know, in the ancient imagination of her and the judgment of her um, mm-hmm. than it does for us. Um, so they're pretty bad. Um, they are, but they're complex. That's what's so interesting about them is like they're bad, but their their bad has complexities, because even Cersei like. She transforms all these people. The implication is to eat them, absolutely. But you can also see a way in which she's doing it as protection for herself and her island. You know, she sees these people as a threat. And while that's not a good way of necessarily handling a threat, you can see maybe where she's coming from. And I feel similarly with Medea, like less so about her brother, um, but with the children in Euripides, like Euripides really sets it up as though you can see her thought processes where she's like going through everything that has happened to her, all of her options as this woman who is not Greek, um, who is living in Mm. Corinth and, and really has minimal options when Jason decides to leave her because she and her children will have nothing. They'll just be like thrown out. And, and so you can almost see that again, like this is not 
you know, a, a decision that is that we're meant to think is a good one. But you can see how she gets there, where she almost feels like it's a kindness to her children versus having them with her just like left out in the dust because of Jason. And so like in both cases, that's what interests me where, you know, they do bad things. Absolutely. There's no like redeeming their actual actions, but you can see where they're coming from. Whereas Mm -hmm. with the Roman and I'm not as familiar with the Roman, I'll admit, but they feel a lot more just like almost not, not necessarily comedically, but like over the top evil over the top bloody and gory and over and just like bizarre almost yeah um yes and uh uh yes i mean there's a little well i was going to say there's little attempt to give canidia much of a backstory or to make her to make her sympathetic um Mm -hmm. although um uh i mean there's quite a lot of humour, I suppose, sardonic humour in one of Horace's poems about her, the, the one in which he claims to have been subject to her binding love magic. Mm. Arixo too, Lucan's Arixo, you know, this great sort of necromantic witch. Mm-hmm. Um, again, she's not completely one-dimensional. Uh, there are a couple of there are a couple of little touches in that in that you know, as you would, as you would say, bizarrely over-the-top portrait that I like. One is that uh, when Sextus Pompey first seeks her out to perform a, a reanimation for him, um, or at least a, a, some sort of divination, it turns out to be a, 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 a reanimation. Um, you know, he 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 tells her that he's, he's you know he's sought her out because you know he's heard that she's the best, and mm. she's she's clearly flattered, she's clearly touched by that. You know, so there's that little, little very human element to it. Um, and then also when she's threatening the gods in order to get um, them to make the ghost re-inhabit the body so that she can reanimate the corpse, one of the threats that she makes is to expose the goddess Hecate before mm. the other gods without her makeup on. Oh, um, you know that's <laughs> what sort of a threat is that? I mean, it's all about it's all about the, the, the like the I don't know the the the, hor- the, the horrors of of uh, of um, petty bourgeois, you know, middle age, isn't it? And it's, yeah. you know, what what, but it's but it, but it's humour, isn't it? Because it's just it's just yeah. humour. It's, it's there's lots of humour there. So again, Erico is a complex figure. Um, but I've recently argued again. Again, this is quite um this is probably quite an obscure book. So you may not, and it's a little, just a little book. You may not have seen it. Um, mm. I also have, I've also recently published something called the Strix Witch. Um, and um, this is a little book, just about 30,000 words, on that phenomenon. Um, and that phenomenon, to be brief, is a phenomenon of old women who transform themselves, well, who fly by night, either by transforming themselves into owls or by some sort of soul projection. Uh, and in either owl form or soul form, they penetrate a domestic house Um there's usually some sort of issue as to how they get past the door, but I think you know, that's the challenge. Um, and they attack babies within, either stealing the baby or attacking the baby, stealing organs from the baby, sometimes surreptitiously stealing organs from the baby so you don't realize they're stolen, mm. and then getting out again, and leaving the baby to sort of, well, either leave, leaving the baby dead or to fail slowly. 
Um, so that's quite a, that's quite a phenomenon, and um, mm-hmm. we get that in we get we get um, of the classical authors we get Ovid and Petronius talking about these witches, um, and uh, what they say is sort of nicely amplified by some medieval sources, which, which I, I won't go into. Um, but I think I mean that's a that's that that was a distinctive phenomenon in Roman culture. That was mm-hmm. kind of like the Roman answer to the Greek child killing demon, the Lamia. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I mean, I, I mean, the fun, I mean, what the function of that sort of folk belief, sort of the strict switch, um, is clearly, I think, to to account for, you know, mass infant mortality. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if every other child is going to die within a few weeks of being born, you know, you need an explanation for it, don't you? But anyway, I think I think that that idea, the notion of this strict switch, this quite distinctive phenomenon. Um, is what imbues the portraits of witches in um, in uh, in Latin literature, in, in the poetry mm-hmm. and the prose, and Apuleius too. Um, I think there's, I think that is what sort of gets into the mix there, and that's why they're suddenly witches are all suddenly like old and bloodthirsty. I think mm-hmm. they're basically they've all been strixified, even if they're not specifically designated as strixes on an individual basis. Hmm. That's really interesting. I it sort of connects with what I had sort of, of, of thought of the Roman, the Latin uh, witches, which is they also witches and comma which is uh, that they also sound like a bit of a commentary on women and just the opinions of these writers and the culture on on women broadly because. Mm. I mean, even just the idea of of the a threat of like revealing a goddess without makeup on doesn't seem like something that a woman would ever write. You know, it very much <laughs> feels like like a man writing about a woman. And I find that that very interesting. I think it, it says something about their like mindsets. Um Well, yes, poss- possibly I suppose but yes, I suppose it's a man recognizing a peculiarly feminine anxiety i suppose mm-hmm. yeah and 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 blowing it blowing it up big isn't it this mother's day join care in honoring the resilience of mothers around the world In Sierra Leone, facing one of the world's highest maternal mortality rates, one nurse named Zainab has not lost a single mother. Supported by CARES Work, Zainab's clinic has become a beacon of hope in her community. Zainab's spirit extends to CARES Work worldwide, aiming to ensure every mother's safety during childbirth. Learn more at care.org slash Mother's Day. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. 
And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Yes, it, well, I suppose yes. It's hard to be fair. It's hard not to look at these Roman portraits of witches um, uh, and not think of them as being misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, and that's fair enough. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to resile from that. Um, but one point I would want to make is that this concept of the strict witch in itself, which is which is influencing these portraits. Uh, I'm not sure that the concept of it in itself is misogynistic. Hmm. Even though even the, you're, 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 you're painting a picture of a distinctively female monster, a kind of anti-mother monster. Mm-hmm. Um, again, what is the social function of believing in strict witches or in, as a, on the Greek side in child-killing demons? I think it is to explain um, otherwise inexplicable infant mortality. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and it seems to me, and if and if a strict switch or a child killing demoness, Lamia, uh, is not is is not going to get the blame for a child dying, who is going to get the blame for a child dying? Mm-hmm. Um, isn't it better? Isn't it better to be blaming child killing demons and and child killing witches than to be than to be executing young mothers who've mm-hmm. just lost their babies? You know, so <laughs> very true. So I think it's, you, know, you know, I think it's a, I think it's a, you know, it's not as not quite as cut and dried as it thinks. You know, uh, as as it as it seems. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes these these sorts of belief can can actually um, work in women's favour, uh, and not not always not always to their to their detriment. And indeed, I would say that I mean, who who thinks more about him? Who, who in ancient society cares most, uh, frets most, is most anxious about infant mortality? I would suggest it is the mothers, in fact. Mm-hmm. So probably these ideas, these ideas of, uh, say, strict switches and, and child-killing demons probably originate, I would say, and sort of belong with women themselves in the first instance. Mm-hmm. So, again, so I'm a bit, I'm a bit reluctant to, to, just to, just to just to say in a sort of very reductive way, this is a misogynistic idea. Yes, it's, it's it's an idea that we may well find being used mis- misogynistically in our in our in our male authors. That's the thing. It sounds like a little bit of of everything, um, because I mean, certainly, I mean, even just the idea of if, if if babies are dying, if there is an issue with infant mortality, and you have to explain it via a supernatural source, like it seems obvious that that source would be feminine. It, that certainly, you know, just sort of fits the bill. Um, but then I, I think it's, it's similar, you know, 
you can have those ideas that are that are based in in not misogynist ideas that are just based in in sort of like the more obvious choice um that then can get transformed into more misogynist ideals like when it comes to the latin authors who are who are sort of having a lot of fun with these characters and and you know inventing their own versions certainly but that's very interesting the idea of uh, the connection with lamia as well because I, i mean i suppose i i I'm just constantly fascinated by the the explanations that the ancient people had to to account for tragedies and or just you know phenomena like like babies dying you know unexpectedly and and the idea that that uh, the uh, concept of a of a child killing demon or a this witch you know is invented to sort of account for that is is interesting and 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 certainly refreshing that it doesn't mean that immediately the mothers are going to be blamed for, you know, killing an heir or something. Sure, exactly. Yeah. It's it's fascinating to me that that I guess you know, witches in in ancient Greece then didn't get the same designation, like they had these very distinct ideas. And and Lamia too, like, you know, she she doesn't appear in a lot of of strict mythology, more of like this the folk idea like you're mentioning. Yes. At, yes. which has always interested me uh, because she's an interesting character and sometimes she's one person and sometimes she's like a concept sure. of these like demon characters. Um, but I suppose the other thing that, that occurred to me as well is Circe and Medea, the, the most famous, if not the only Greek witches are also explicitly divine in a way that the Roman witches seem much more, not necessarily mortal explicitly, but like, down to earth for lack of a better mm. term oh sure yes yeah mm-hmm. um yeah i mean there are, you, you have to really scrape around for for uh shall i say ordinary witches in the greek world i mean mm-hmm. i suppose we have the historical example of theoris who was mm. uh, a, a, you know again a woman accused of witch of witchcraft in classical athens um and lucian lucian uh, again, mm-hmm. second century AD, going going quite late now. Greek author mm-hmm. does 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 have some some witches talking together, or or, or rather some courtesans talking about a witch, I should say. Um, mm. They can use um, uh, again. One might think they live in the same world to a certain extent, um, but, mm-hmm. but yes, it's yes, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard, and of course, there's always the problem of Simitha. You know, I mean, Simitha. Mm. Um, uh, again, many people I think would argue that Simitha is not a witch, but she's sure, she's surely pretending to be a witch very hard, isn't she? I don't think I'm familiar with her. Oh, you're not familiar with Simitha? Oh, well, oh, well, that's, oh, no. Or if I am, I've forgotten. <laughs> right. Oh, well, yeah. So this is um, Theocritus's second idyll. So you know, Hellenistic, mm. Alexandrian literature oh. around about two seven five BC, something like that. Um, oh, it's a wonderful book. It's about a hundred lines, is it, uh, or so? Um, a very elaborate monologue. By this young young woman, it is she is a young woman, mm-hmm. I think, um, who has acquired a boyfriend, Delphis. Um, she says she was a virgin beforehand, um, but he's been with her for a few days or a few weeks, and he suddenly disappeared. He's not he's not coming around anymore. Um, um, and with the help of her maid, so she's clearly not a completely destitute woman. I don't know what her she seems to live on her own with her maid, but don't know what her don't know what her source of income is. Um, but together mm-hmm. they are um, 
concocting, concocting a very elaborate love spell to get him back. Mm-hmm. Um, and we hear about all the details of this love spell as, as, as she speaks. Um, and she's throwing everything at him. So all sorts of love magic of, a, of sorts that you would never find together in the same place usually. Everything is thrown together in this kind of haphazard way, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, with a, you know, with a, you know um, if a little is good, a lot is better principle. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it's, I, I, again, you know, in some ways, you know, it seems as though she knows a lot. You know, she's, you know, she has a lot of expertise about love magic. You know, when you line up what she's doing with Greek magical papyri and, and other, other literary texts. Well, possibly, but it's, it's also possible that her knowledge is kind of superficial and, you know, she's just, mm-hmm. as, a, as it were, sort of, play, you know, she's an amateur playing the game as best she can. Um, mm-hmm. But whatever she is, I mean, I think nonetheless, it's uh, that, 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 that poem is splendid evidence for, for witchcraft, you know, and ideas mm-hmm. about witches, you know, whether Simitha herself is actually a witch or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I realized as soon as you started describing it, it's been recommended to me. So it's on my list of two reads. Right. So I'm glad to have that description yeah, it as is in, well. It is in the source book, actually. So uh, you don't need to go very far. To oh, great. <laughs> Perfect. That source book is so big. I've made my way through like certain chunks of it for episodes, but there's always more to get through. So one thing that uh, that Ryan mentioned when we were speaking about sea monsters and the thrill of those uh, is he was mentioning, you know, ideas of dragons uh, and the connection to the real world. But I'm curious about just because dragons feel so um, separate, I suppose, from from real life in a way that, you know, as we were discussing sea monsters, you can really see where they're getting the idea of sea monsters from just a lack of knowledge of what exists within the sea and what they can sure you know, discover about it. Um, but dragons, you know, specifically like Apollo and Delphi yeah. and, and that situation feels so separate. So I'm just curious about the connections between real things. Yes, um, that is a good question. Um, I think the first thing to say is that the ancient Greek word for dragon is draco. Uh, mm-hmm. And that goes into Latin as draco. And then I suppose English gets it through medieval French probably um, as dragon. Um, but mm. dracone didn't mean quite the same thing as dragon does to us. Mm-hmm. Um, dracone basically means a jolly big snake um, <laughs> uh, with, uh, and uh, well, this is my sort of the, the definition that I've come come to use for it over the years: um, uh, a big snake and something more. Um, mm. And that's something more. Is where usually there's a sort of supernatural dimensional context to it, um, or sometimes the more can be much more sort of crudely physical, you know, an extra part. So, for example, many dracontes are are portrayed on Greek vases with beards, hu- human style mm. beards, um, for example, um, uh, or they're often sort of compounded into with, with other animals to make you know make um, compound monsters of of, of, of various sorts. Um, so mm-hmm. obviously, Kerberos has a has a dragon tail and dragon hair. People don't often realise that dragon dragon hair. Um, love his dragon mane, his little snakes in the mane. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah. obviously, you know, Medusa has the there's a dracontes on her head. The Chimera has mm-hmm. this dragon tail. Um, mm-hmm. um, 
So, yeah, but 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 a dra- but I say, but a, a dracon could just be a big snake. I say, and the minimum sort of requirement is a, a kind of supernatural context. Um, and mm-hmm. so, the serpents of Asclepius, for example, were dracontes, mm. um, and right. um, there is evidence. You've got to work hard with it, but there is evidence for the maintenance of actual snakes. Um, if uh, if your listeners are herpetologically minded, uh, they were probably four-lined snakes, a variety of rat snake. Um, there is evidence for them being maintained in, in temples um, mm. uh, where, they, where they were used as uh, Asclepius' temples and other healing temples, where they were used as part of the part of the healing process and, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, would be invited to lick or kiss the patients. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, yes, it affects different people in different ways, doesn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I'd quite like it myself, I think. But uh, well, I mean, four-line four snakes are, are, are harmless, and actually, um, well, I think I think friendly would be the wrong word. But I've seen them described as phlegmatic. They don't mind humans mauling them, you know. So, um, but uh, but anyway, so 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 there is a sense in which you know dracontes, some kinds of dracontes were were real animals, very much part of not not necessarily everyday life, but part of real life, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, it's really just a matter of you know just imagining uh, how far though how far the dracone that you know I won't say in love but the dracone that you know how how far that idea can be stretched you know what other varieties of it mm-hmm. might there be have there been you know so um, yeah um and in, in terms of like sort of more monstrous, um, uh, fantastical creatures, I mean Dracontes and, and others. Uh, again, one of the mm. one of the um, I'm sh- I'm sure um, that um, this must be a big book for you as it is for me. Um, Adrian Mayor's First Fossil Hunters. Um, mm. In fact, I have to say, if you're looking if you're looking for recommendations to come on your podcast. I would put her number one. <laughs> and, she's on my list. Uh, that, that is, I mean, a, a splendid, fascinating book, and she's a splendid communicator as well. Um, mm-hmm. And um, one of the amazing things that I learned from that book is that I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to think of. I want to say primeval, but that's a bit of a that's a bit of a broad word. Um, well, pre, let's just say prehistoric mega fauna mm. fossils. Um, I'm right. sure there's a better word than that, but anyway, um, were found in the archaeological remains of the Temple of Hera on Samos, the Great Temple of Hera on Samos. You know, mm. um, I'm not sure whether it was specifically one of these um, uh, mega giraffes that used to exist, but anyway, something like that. So anyway, so the bones of a of a massive, strange creature, um, and you've got to ask, right. how did they get there? You know, so mm-hmm. clearly some ancient Greek at some point dug these out of a hillside somewhere or found them lying around and, you know, said, well, this is a, these are the bones of something pretty amazing, pretty special. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, all sorts of stories could be, could be spun around it. So I'm sure on some occasions bones like this were the bones of great 
Dracontes from the past. On other occasions, they would be identified as human bones, I suppose. Again, we hear about, as you're probably aware, we hear all sorts of stories about the discovery of the bones of heroes, and heroes were imagined to be supersized, so that works, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're given special special treatment. Um, but again, but but what what is going on in in your mind if you're again if you're living in the ancient world and you don't have a you, you, you know you're not a um, you're not a Darwinian, you know you don't have a concept <laughs> of you know of uh, the, as it were the historical dimension of these creatures. You know, mm-hmm. for you, the Earth is always pretty much always going to have been as it is now. So what? How do these mm-hmm. creatures fit into it? There you are. I mean, there is your proof. There is your incontrovers- incontrovertible evidence that monsters of the sort that you hear about in myth did exist. If they don't exist now, they mm-hmm. did exist. You know. Um, so, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, yes, yeah, so I don't think it's too hard, really, for the it was too hard for the ancient Greeks to to make um, these tricontes real for themselves. Right. I love the idea of, of finding some kind of bones and then coming up with the idea for the chimera because it's one of my favorite creatures. It's just so bizarre. Right. And certainly it could have also just been imagination based on, on other things that they'd found. But I just like the idea of them finding some bones and being like, well, I think this is a lion, but maybe there's also a goat's head and, and a snake involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the goat. I mean, the goat is the tricky part, isn't it? Of course, it's... Yeah, in a sense, the goat is the indispensable part because chimera means goat. So it's almost like it started with the goat, and the the the, the, the other bits of it, which look more useful, <laughs> like the lion yeah. and the snake, they 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 may be, they may be the 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 optional extras. Um, mm-hmm. But I mean, again, well, of course, I'm always promoting um, and urging the importance of Dracontes. Um But I do mm-hmm. think, I mean, having having mentioned the chimera, I do think. Um, the dragon, although it's just a tiny bit, it's just a tail, as, as with Kerberos. Mm. Although it's only a tiny sort of proportion of the monster, in many ways it's the most important part, and it's kind of like the business end. Because why mm. is the chim- the chimera terrible? Because it goes around burning everywhere up. It's a fire-breathing monster. Mm. It goes around laying waste to landscapes. Um, how does it have the capacity? To breathe fire, well, that has mm. to come. Even if it's breathing fire out of its lion mouth, not its snake mouth, that ability has to come from the, the snake element. It seems to me because, uh, uh, again, the notion that I should I, perhaps I should have started somewhere else here. The notion that drag, ancient mm. dragons breathe fire, and that's very, very firmly established already in the ancient world. That is clearly mm. um, in an ancient context an imaginative extrapolation of of. Um, of viper venom, you know, which is which which which, which oh. induces a burning sensation. I'm sure, I don't doubt at all oh. that's where, that's why dragons breathe fire because they're like big vipers. Um, yeah. And so the chimera, to go back to the chimera, breathes fire because it has that snake tail. Mm-hmm. Um, Kerberos, similarly, I would say. I mean, again, one of the lesser mm-hmm. myths of Kerberos, but my my personal favourite, is that when Heracles dragged him out of the underworld bear in mind he'd been Mm -hmm. born in the underworld he'd never seen daylight before Mm -hmm. so um big tough dog as he was he was terrified and what and what does a terrified dog do he threw up (laughs) and he he threw up on on a harmless plant 
called the aconite and his vomit or his slather transformed that plant into the most supposedly the most poisonous plant of the ancient world the aconite um, again so where is that venomousness coming from again it has to be not his doggy mm. element but his snake element mm. and then if we go to medusa again uh, what is her sort of you know usp her characteristic you know weapon of course as you know it's freezing people isn't it into stone mm-hmm. um and it's not true apparently but there is this widespread folk belief very very widespread international folk belief that snakes hypnotize their prey before eating them mm. and freeze freeze their prey um right. i mean i think it's pro- probably often the case that a rabbit seeing a snake just just does in fact freeze as a sort of defense mechanism mm-hmm. to avoid being seen um, especially snakes sort of see movement more easily than, um, you know, fixed things. Um, but anyway, there is that belief. And it seems to me that the reason that Medusa and the Gorgons can, can freeze people into stone is because that's, again, that's another snake capacity that's been, mm-hmm. you know, built up, magnified and built up. So although snakes are a sort of relative, relatively small proportion of these three monsters, as I say, I think they're they're the key bit, really. They're the, they're the they're the things that give them their their killer their killer qualities. You know? Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I wonder too about like paralytical qualities of snake venom. I don't know enough, but it it seems to me that that could be connected to Medusa as well. Oh yes, well, that, actually that's a good point. Yes, because snake venom, I think yes, it can it can it can paralyze, can't it too? So yeah, so. That may well be part of the story. Yes, indeed. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'm curious about um, the myths that involve the planting of the teeth afterwards. Sure. And I know that that comes from like Autochthony and just you know being born of the earth. Yeah. But in terms of the snake value, is there anything there? Uh, I don't. I don't know if there's anything distinctively snaky about that. Mm-hmm. Um, it is weird, isn't it, um, that we get this mm-hmm. um, this motif in two different places. We both get it in Thebes mm-hmm. when Cadmus has killed uh, the dragon, the dragon of Ares, mm-hmm. and then we get it again over in Colchis. Um, mm-hmm. They're two very different examples. Like they're one's like growing the new Thebans to help Cadmus, yeah. and then one is like the people that Jason has to fight. So I find that interesting as well, that they're very distinct in terms of like the function of the people yes. that grow. Well, yeah, I mean, well, again, they're both they warriors. Are. They're both bunches of warriors, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And actually Cadmus does have to deal with mm-hmm. the, the Theban spot sown men. Um, mm-hmm. he, he, again, he has to throw this stone in amongst them so that they start fighting themselves. <laughs> I mean, I suppose the notion is right. that they fight him otherwise. So maybe it's maybe it's not right. quite so different. Um but um, but we are told actually that when Athene gathered up the, the teeth for Cadmus to sow, sorry, mm-hmm. I mean gathered the teeth out of the, the jaws of the dragon of Ares, she kept half of them back and gave them to Aetes. So it's so so those so those those um stone warriors over right. in Colchis are I mean they come from the same place. Um uh I mean well I'll say something more about No, no, I'll say I'll I'll talk about Thebes first. Um, right. <laughs> one thing that interests me about that particular story is mm-hmm. that um, there are different traditions about Cadmus. Cadmus is attributed with discovering or inventing a lot of different things. 
including alphabets. Mm-hmm. He's also credited with the discovery of metal and the invention of mining. Mm. Now, bear, now, think about that in connection with, um, uh, with uh, well, two facts. Normally, normally he is said to have killed the dragon with a stone. Mm. Um, and then, of course, the stone men famously grow out of the ground already wearing arms. Mm-hmm. And I can't help feeling mm-hmm. that that is another way of telling the story of Cadmus's discovery of metal. He kills mm-hmm. the snake with a stone because metal doesn't yet exist. But then the teeth are sewn, the warriors spring up, and there they are wearing armour. There is metal. There is metal coming out of the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so in other words, so somehow that metal comes from the body of the dragon, which is interesting. Again, you do, one tends to think about the metallicness of, of snakeskin then. But, mm-hmm. um, but then going over to Colchis, mm-hmm. it is weird. It is weird that... Why should half of these teeth be held mm-hmm. back and then given to Eetes? Um, it just doesn't really make sense. Um, so, I mean, the um, uh, I mean, the order of things as we have it. Oh gosh, as I, as I recall, in um, in in uh, Apollonius's Argonautica, is mm-hmm. yeah. So for the first trial that Jason has with Eetes is to sew the teeth. That's no, right. Sorry, yes, mm-hmm. is to is to, to yoke the fiery bulls, with which which he then uses to sew the teeth, the snake's teeth, the, teeth. the dragon's teeth into the ground. Then the armed men grow up, and then he has to fight the armed men. Then he mm-hmm. goes on to deal with the the dracone, the dragon, another dracone that guards the golden fleece. Now I have to say, it would make much more sense, wouldn't it? within the Colchis story, if he dealt with the dragon first, and then those armed men derived not from the teeth of some strange Theban dragon all the way over there, but from the teeth of the Colchis dragon. Uh, and mm-hmm. I must admit, I, I'm very tempted to believe that there was this thing, this thing, the mythical lost version of the story, which I was talking about. Mm-hmm. There was a lost version of that story in which the, the, the episodes happened in a different order. Um, and mm-hmm. um, so dragon first, and, dragon, and Jason would obviously have to would have had to kill it, I suppose, uh, rather than it just being sort of drugged by Medea. Um, uh, and then the teeth come from the dragon, and are then sewn. And at that point, uh, Jason has to has to uh, fight the um, fight the armed warriors, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is exactly actually what happens. In the uh, 1963 movie, Jason and the Argonauts, mm-hmm. again, Ray Harryhausen changes that all around and, and to, to, to give it a much better, a much better logic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those great skeleton men. Exactly. I mean, yes. Yes. Again, it's, 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 it's important to, yes, it is important. I'm, I'm afraid rather soberly and disappointingly to remind your, your listeners that those skeletons, they belong to Ray Harryhausen and that the original sewn men are just, I'm afraid, rather boring, ordinary men i know it's too bad because the skeletons are incredible yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah uh yeah that's really interesting i because there's also we have that pottery of jason like being spit out of the dragon too yeah. right so it, it it certainly seems to suggest there's there's a different tradition there especially because apollonius is writing so late and we know 
that the general idea of the story of, of the Argonautica and the quest and everything is much older, but most of the details we have are, are from the Hellenistic period. So, Well, I agree. Yes, I mean, for me, one of the big mysteries, actually, um, of mm. ancient Greek literature and myth is where was the original Argonautica? Where, mm. where, where did that brilliant, brilliant story... Um, where was it originally kept? Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I mean, there are suggestions about sort of obscure lost epics, like the like the mountain, like the the epic of Naupactus, of which maybe eight words mm -hmm. I forget exactly how many. It's like eight words survive. <laughs> you know, um, strange suggestions like this, um, but it is a mystery. It is. It really is a mystery where that where that myth was was sort of kept and cherished. Uh, before it actually mm -hmm. ended up in in Apollonius, um, mm -hmm. uh, oh gosh, now I was going to say something else. <laughs> what was that? No. Oh yes, sorry. Yes, you mentioned that that wonderful the the the, the Duris the Dur the Duris Cup um, with mm. um, with Jason. Yeah, um, being yeah Hank being thrown up again. <laughs> again. Yeah. Uh, here we come to. <laughs> Dragons throwing things up is becoming a theme, isn't it? Being thrown up by the <laughs> by, by the dragon, uh, which and that's an episode which just simply does not um, appear at all in the literature. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I do I do have a theory about what's going on there. Um, uh, I mean, why should why should the dragon have to throw Jason up? Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, he's going to be he's going to be thrown up. He's going to live again, and he's going to get the fleece. Um, Mm -hmm. So you know, obviously, at one stage it was looking very good for the dragon. Uh, um, well, again, I come back to Apollonius of Rhodes, and yet again, um, um, I'm uh, well. Now I was going to say I want to rearrange his episodes. In fact, I don't need to rearrange his episodes. Mm. But um, one of the episodes in that, um, so before. Jason faces the fiery balls and the armed warriors. One of the very distinctive, memorable episodes in that is that uh, Medea um, um, smears him all over with a, an invincibility mm -hmm. lotion to protect him. Um, mm -hmm. And it seems to me that actually that may be the key to what's going on with the dragon spitting him, up, spitting him out. Um, mm. uh, I think maybe he's he is imbued with this invincibility lotion at this point too, or still, um, and uh, and so the, the dragon can't digest him. So even though it succeeds in swallowing mm -hmm. him, it has to throw him up again. And as I say, he lives to fight another day. Um, that's my mm -hmm. that's my theory about uh, about what's going on there. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That I mean, it, given Jason is helped by Medea in very important and vital ways throughout that certainly makes sense that it would be another one of her actions that that you know helps him get out of the dragon exactly, yes. in whatever yeah. way because yeah he he does very little without her without her help yeah. in the argonautica yeah. yes he's always being sidelined and if, if you if you look at the uh, the late antique orphic argonautica he's completely sidelined because orpheus basically orpheus becomes the star of that and uh, mm -hmm. Medea still has something to do, but Jason he really is a third wheel. He just uh, just uh, hanging around, doing not much. 
Yeah. 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 He's interesting for that. Um, what Cadmus is, is one of my favorites and I'm realizing now it's been a really long time since I've actually like talked about him much on the podcast because, because there's not, there's not a lot of like long winded, um, evidence for his stories or surviving pieces, but I find him so fascinating because he was such an important hero uh, like in terms of, you know, as you were saying, he brought the alphabet mythologically and and metal, which I wasn't aware of. And I I love that connection between the the stone and then and the stone men growing up with with full armor on. Um, but I'm just curious about I suppose this isn't a question so much as I just am interested in Cadmus and, and always curious for more, but I wonder if you just have any thoughts on, on him as a character, given he does have these important aspects, but, but is lacking much in the way of any, like, you know, long epic story, like, like the rest of the more famous heroes. Um, well, not, not really, I'm afraid. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, it was a stretch. <laughs> We're not talking about him. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, uh, I mean, I'm sure there would have been um, there would have been an awful lot of themes in the epic cycle, um, mm-hmm. and um, yes, I mean, we do have a lot, an awful lot of sort of quite meaty Theban mythology still, don't we? Especially mm-hmm. in tragedies. Um, but you're right. Yes, it's, yes, Cadmus is a bit of a Cadmus is a bit of a hole in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and even from what I've heard about the the like missing Theban cycle, is it it does still seem to be more revolving around the Oedipus and the Seven Against Thebes bit. Sure. So all people who descended from Cadmus, but even still, it it seems like in the the lost works that we know are lost, mm. you know, versus everything sure. else, um, it still seems that he might be this kind of like missing character. And I just find him so fascinating for that. I guess just because he. He does have really important things attached to him, but without any real story that we know of as either surviving or or being missing. Um, Just like to theorize on Cadmus personally. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, 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 what we don't have is a yeah, as you say, is a sort of meaty recreation, you know. So we don't have a, you know, a, a Homeric account of Cadmus. We don't we don't have Cadmus mm-hmm. in tragedy. We don't even have a well. Um, He's in Bacca. Oh yes, yes, yes. Um, and then, and then there's and yes, yes, briefly, and there, and actually there's quite an interesting reference to him there. Um, and mm-hmm. obviously, we get a bit of get a bit of Ovid, a nice bit of Ovid mm-hmm. uh, about him. Um, and Nonus is sort of the big one, but he's so he's writing oh, so oh, late. Indeed, yes, Nonus yes, is Dionysiac. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Well, you're a brave, you're a brave a person if you, can, if you can get through Nonus. <laughs> I've read all the Cadmus bits okay, of that, right, and it's okay, right, yeah, mind sure. blowing. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yes, but you're right. You're right. He's, he doesn't really come across as a personality somehow, does he? Mm-hmm. Um, but he is. Yes, he is interesting. I mean, he's. I mean, um, I mean, not 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 the least interesting fact about him is his is his end, isn't it? How how he ends up being transformed mm-hmm. into a into a dragon alongside alongside um, yeah. Harmonia. Um, you know, and one wonders, one wonders why that is. What's that all about? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that particularly because his his family is so cursed as well. So his his family is so cursed, and then they're turned into snakes. So they're almost not cursed. Is just a, a something I find quite interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, part. I mean, part. It might be um, that he has to 
make further compensation for killing the dragon, as it were, by sort of becoming a dragon in mm-hmm. its place. But you, th- well, then you mm-hmm. have to wonder about harmonia. Why does harmonia have to change too? You know, um, mm-hmm. and what happened between? I mean, how how is it that Cadmus could kill Ares' son, the dragon, mm-hmm. um, but then gets to marry Ares' daughter, Harmonia? What mm-hmm. you know? Again, mm-hmm. what's going on there? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, yes. I mean, well, I mean, the I mean, the psychology I'd like to to see in all this is is actually Ares' psychology. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. That's what I mean. That's something I wonder about a lot. Generally, yeah. <laughs> Aries is interesting. Well, and and I Harmonia is is the reason I developed an interest in Cadmus um, because I find her so fascinating. She's basically the only goddess who is you know a goddess on both sides. Of, by both her parents are incredibly important, like both Olympians, and yet she lives her whole life as a mortal with Cadmus. Mm. And I just think there must be some kind of reasoning there right. that we don't have, some kind of background, because that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. But sure, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, and again, and again, that sort of almost sort of intensifies the question as to why she has to end up as a dragon, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, like why is she not immortal? There's never an explanation for for why she would be living as a mortal and be able to, you know, that she doesn't get, you know, apotheosized like Heracles or anyone Mm. else, given that she is like, she's equivalent to Eros in terms of parentage. Sure. But then she has this whole mortal story and Mm. yeah, she and she and Cadmus are my passion project. Uh, (laughs) So I'm just constantly looking for more about them. Uh, Well, I mean, this has been, so incredibly fascinating. I mean, I'm thrilled to have have learned so much about these witches and and werewolves and dragons and snakes and and also Cadmus. So thank you for indulging me on my Cadmus and Harmonia yeah. talk. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I really appreciate you speaking with me today. Right. Thank you so much. Um, is there anything you'd like to share with my listeners in terms of of you know your books or your work at all? Um, well, um, yes, it'll be a long time before. <laughs> Before I produce another book, I'm afraid. I mean, I'm I'm at the bottom of the bottom of a sort of productive valley at this point. Um, I may or may not, um, at some point in the distant future, produce a sort of general general guide to to classical mythology, um, which as you have mm. done yourself. Um, uh, um, but um, but no, no, no. I mean, my my most recent proudest productions are. The werewolf book, which you've uh, which you've mentioned, and then also there's what we call the new the new dragon book, the th- dragon three as I call it, yeah. um, the dragon in the west, <laughs> um, and um, yeah. So that's those are the two books I want to advertise at this point. Wonderful. Well, I'll I'll put them in the episode's description, and um, I plan to to air our conversation in around October when I love to do all of the spooky stuff and so i will be using all of your books again and my listeners can learn more about them that way and and i'll 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 share where to purchase them and everything because your books have been incredibly helpful to me in all my spooky season episodes so thank you for that that's very kind thank you uh well i was i'm thrilled to have you um yeah thank you thank you so much for doing that great it's been a pleasure
Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. Thank you, as always, for listening. I fucking love spooky season. It is just so much fun to trawl all the ancient sources and characters for anything that I can even remotely relate to this topic. It's like a treasure hunt every year. And I've been using Daniel Logden's books for that treasure hunt for years now. So it was lovely to actually speak with him and learn about all these things even more directly. Especially that I got to talk about my new fascination, the vast difference between Greek witches and Roman witches. (sighs) Those Roman witches, man, they were really something else. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek myth and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron where you'll get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. As always, you all are the absolute best and I wouldn't be here without you. Thank you for listening. This coming Tuesday, the underworld. Chthonic cuties. I am Liv and I, I love this shit quite a bit. This Mother's Day, join CARE in honoring the resilience of mothers around the world. In Sierra Leone, facing one of the world's highest maternal mortality rates, one nurse named Zainab has not lost a single mother. Supported by CARE's work, Zainab's clinic has become a beacon of hope in her community. Zainab's spirit extends to CARE's work worldwide, aiming to ensure every mother's safety during childbirth. Learn more at care.org slash Mother's Day. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.